The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission. To learn more about the work of IJM, listen to the Esther series on this podcast. It's just a few shows back. Start with episode one and get a really good sense of what IJM is doing and how you can help. Then go to IJM.org forward slash rescue dash children. Thank you. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we spend time with Sarah Stewart-Holland and Beth Silvers. Sarah and Beth are the duo that co-host Pantsuit Politics, a podcast that I just really appreciate. And this show is, as they describe it, a podcast for real conversations that help us understand politics, democracy, and the news while still treating each other like thoughtful human beings. That's that's the key. Here's the deal. These two friends are on opposite sides of the aisle. One is left, one is right, and they're both a little bit mixed up in the middle together. Yet somehow they exist in this mutual respectful space, and they are able to talk about their differences. They're able to learn from each other. They they disagree at times, and ultimately they maintain their relationship, which is what we are going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk together about how we can be political activists, how we can have strong feelings and beliefs, which we which we should have, and those are good things, yet how we can coexist with those who may not share those feelings and beliefs. Obviously, this airs right in the middle of the U.S. presidential election time, which is no accident. I am excited to share with you the very nuanced conversation I was fortunate to have with Sarah and Beth of Pantsuit Politics. So, Sarah and Beth, I was curious if you would, and this feels like a cheesy interview thing to do, but I'm just curious how you'll do it. And so I'm going to do it. Um, I was curious <laughs> if you could introduce, <laughs> I do, I feel like I'm on like a, a movie junket right now, but um, how you, how would you introduce the other person? Um, I, I'll go first. Yes. I would say that um, Beth is the, the, the conscience of pantsuit politics. Uh, she is the co-host who brings a really beautiful, in-depth, global understanding of not only her own feelings, but other people's feelings and perceptions in a way I'm, I realize is increasingly rare in other human beings. Hmm. And she is the mother of two beautiful girls and a wife and a, a recovering attorney. Yeah. And a really fabulous yoga teacher yoga yeah beth how would um how do you introduce how would you introduce sarah sarah is a ball of energy and has the wisest way of giving voice to emotion of anyone that i know and i think hmm. that if you feel lost in the news or politics sarah will become like an anchor for you because she is so good at connecting not only what's happening in the present moment to how she's feeling about it, and she is uniquely good at that, but also connecting it to the past and to where things might be going in the future. So she's just a wonderful guide, and she certainly brings to pantsuit politics um, a, a lightness um, mm. that is both illuminating and that lets us all take a break sometimes and laugh and have fun. Sarah served her city as a commissioner for a term. She has three boys who are all unique and interesting and fun. She is married to Nicholas and no one loves their city the way that Sarah loves Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> 
Paducah, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, how, how, how did you all find each other? Because we're obviously, we're getting to the pantsuit politics. We're getting to the book and this great partnership. But how do you all, um, how does your friendship happen? We went to college together at Transylvania University and were sorority sisters. Uh, we weren't super close in college. We kind of had different interests and different personalities, as I'm sure you're hearing as we go along. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love and it. then... We went went off to law school, both of us, but Sarah went to Washington, D.C. I stayed in Kentucky. And then she started a blog, and we reconnected over Facebook. I started reading her blog, and I reached out to her for advice because she wrote very openly about her experiences with natural childbirth. Hmm. And I was really interested in learning from her about that. And that's how we sort of hooked up as adults. Did you know right away that there was like, as you were talking as adults, did you know there was sort of this chemistry that would evolve? Or did it did, like, when, when did you know there was a, a thing happening? I mean, we, she posted, she reached out to me during her maternity leave and said, hey, would you ever be interested in guest posts on your blog oh. from a sort of an opposing political perspective? And I was like, absolutely. That's a day I don't have to write. Bring it on. Um, <laughs> And they were so well received and um, just uh, like Beth, beautifully sort of um, deep and and grace filled and um, really uh, the first example of what we were trying to do on the podcast. My husband had been on me constantly. You should start a podcast. You should start a podcast because he was obsessed with podcasts at the time. Um, and I thought maybe I would do like an interview show and interview women in politics because I'd worked for Hillary Clinton. I knew a lot of women in politics and. Turns out I like to answer questions, not ask them. So it just sort of, <laughs> the one interview I did just had on my desktop. And then when Beth wrote this one post in particular called Nuance, um, I thought, oh, maybe this would be a really cool um, podcast. And I, I said, would you be interested in starting a podcast? And she said, what's a podcast? And I said, don't worry, <laughs> we'll it. figure that part out. Yeah. And I said, well, let's get on the phone and talk uh, just about Kentucky politics and just see how our conversation flows and if we think we might want to do this once a week. And I'll never forget, my baby was asleep in the back of my van and I was driving around so that he wouldn't wake up. And uh, we started talking and about an hour in, I said, okay, we're not gonna do this anymore unless we're recording it. Because it was immediately apparent to me that we had really great um, chemistry, really great conversational flow, that the way we thought, the way we expressed ourselves um, was really complimentary. Because it's not, we are different, but, um, not in a sort of crossfire kind of way, right? Like not right. in a everything, I, I disagree with everything about you. In a lot of really fundamental ways, we're very similar. Um, and so where our differences uh, can sort of come to the surface, they're, they're on a, a really strong foundation of shared values and, and uh, shared experiences and shared perspective. Yeah, that's uh, what struck me. Uh, I'm a fan of the show. And just in case uh, everybody that is listening to this has listened to Pantsuit Politics, but just in case people haven't heard it, Pantsuit Politics is the show that you all host together, um, where you really talk very civilly and lovingly about about the world of politics together. And um, but I'm struck by listening to the show that it isn't immediately clear which you know, the, which side you are on, even if you can say side, like which side people are on, you all are just talking. And it actually takes some digging and listening to understand like, oh, this is, you know, this is Sarah and she's coming, you know, from the left and this is Beth and she's coming from the right. Um, tell me about the design of the podcast. How how intentional is it to not be the now very popular pundit talking head type who gets into a crossfire conversation? Well, when we began, we were 
intending to be more overt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part because that is the model, right? That's what we all have come to understand a conversation about politics looks like. You have a representative of different sides and they um, help you discern the differences between those two sides. And as we got into it, we realized the world doesn't really need more of that. And that's yeah. not really what we're here to do. And instead, we found ourselves just walking more and more in the other's direction and realizing that the work to do here is to unearth the commonality in, in a way that is not trite. You know, we're, we don't sit down and say, okay, well, I'm on the left and you're on the right. And so let's figure out what the compromise position is. That's not our goal. Mm-hmm. We really just want to work through how we feel about things because the landscape politically has shifted so significantly, even since we started the podcast, so much so that we don't introduce ourselves as left and right anymore because those labels don't really work and are practically meaningless in a lot of senses. Hmm. What we want to do is bring our different philosophies about what government can and ought to do to the table and really discuss the issues and figure out what is it that we know about ourselves and each other? What questions do we still have? And what does that mean for us in terms of our current political participation? Yeah, that, you know, my next question was, can you define what left and right means for people that may just be kind of entering into this terminology? But really, I think the broader question is, how can one define oneself these days? Like, Republican, Democrat doesn't work. Left and right doesn't seem to work. There's spectrum on top of spectrum. How do you, how do you navigate kind of sharing what, what you believe in any sort of concise way? Well, I mean, I think um, among our listeners and my hunch is among the broader American populace is the most commonality, you know, the most common trait, the most um, common identity or perspective is just a frustration with how things are right now. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that is, is probably the biggest group among the American electorate. And so that's what we really try to lean into in our book is, yeah, can we can we find that? Can we can we lean on that together that we really don't like the way things are going? And if we don't like the way things are going, then we can cannot continue to engage in the same behaviors. And if you don't like the way that people talk politics, then you need to start talking politics in a different way. If you don't like the way that people um, you know expect the partisan party label to encompass their the entirety of their values and experiences and perspectives, then let's talk about it in a different way. Let's figure out a different approach. And I think, you know, for better, for worse, especially, you know, everywhere left of Donald Trump, that's become a, that's become a label. The label has become not him. And that encompasses a lot of people. I mean, I think that's something I was thinking about a lot in particular early in the democratic primary. And I think you see that even in the contrast of the two that remain between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, which is everybody from I'm a lifelong Republican, but I can't I can't be in the party of Trump to Democratic Socialists is a big spectrum. It's a really big spectrum, really big spectrum. And it's a lot to ask one party to hold. And it's a lot to ask one candidate to fulfill. You know, I think that because Donald Trump has just fundamentally rewritten so many rules of politics and changed um, the Republican Party, changed the the American political landscape so dramatically. You do. I think the the what gets the most the most attention is the fact that it has pushed people 
um, further away and hardened. But I, I don't think that's the whole story. I think there's a bigger thing happening. I think that there's also a a weirdly unifying um, effect where I find his approach so offensive that I'm willing to join in with people I never would have considered 10 years ago. But how do, how do we navigate that? Because baked into that is we're separating um, character with, with issues, right? So we have a choice between, and, and I think people on both sides of the aisle would say, you know, I don't, I don't trust the character of any of the candidates. I don't trust Joe Biden. They don't trust Bernie Sanders. They don't trust uh, Donald Trump. And so there is this thing where we can no longer, it seems, vote for here are their positions on issues, but I also have to factor in maybe more than ever, here's how I feel about them as a human being. And, and sometimes those things don't jive. So how do you begin to, how do you begin to reconcile that when it ultimately comes time to voting for maybe, I mean, we saw this in 2016, Hillary and Donald Trump were just so polarizing from each other. Um, how do you, how do you begin to reconcile the character versus issue debate? I think some of what we have to do is step back and prioritize restoring trust because our whole system depends on us trusting each other. We don't have a democracy if we write off everyone as equally lacking in integrity. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so it's really important, as tempting as it is to say, both sides are terrible. Every politician is corrupt. <laughs> um, it's important that we pull way back from that and try to sort out who do I think is fundamentally a good person, even if they're a good person with whom I sharply disagree about what policies are are going to best serve the public. And I think we also have to recognize that disagreement in policy is a good and healthy thing that we should preserve. So when Sarah and I try to explain to people our fundamental disagreement, we use this metaphor of a car. When it comes to solving problems, Sarah likes to bring the full power and authority of the federal government to solving those problems. And so we say she's the accelerator there. And I'm the brakes. I worry about concentrating that much power in, in the government that already has so much power. When it comes to private industry, I'm the gas. I want to see all that innovation and competition. And Sarah is the brakes. And she'll remind me of where private industry unchecked is as dangerous as a government that is unchecked. And so we have come to recognize that you need both the gas and the brakes to drive a car and that you cannot slam them both down simultaneously and expect to go anywhere. Mm. And I think sometimes when we say we don't trust anyone, a lot of what we mean is I don't trust them to do exactly what I think they ought to do in every case. And that's too much. That That is an inappropriate expectation. Right. We need that tension. We need the disagreement. We need the give and take. We need people who are willing to compromise. That doesn't mean that they are uh, flip-floppers. <laughs> you know, we, we have just become so pejorative in our entire perspective. And there's a laziness in that. And there is a disempowerment in it where we're just sort of giving up as citizens. And I think when faced with someone like Donald Trump, where character is a deep issue and one that even his supporters often recognize as a challenge, um, that's where we have to come out of that tendency to paint it all with one brush and get a little bit more detailed and be willing to say, yes, I, I really disagree strongly with this person about a number of issues, but I do think this person loves the country as much as I do and is able to help the most people restore some faith in the process. Yes. And I 
I hear I hear that, and I I agree with what you're saying. But then I think, and I, and pardon me to interject any of my own story into a conversation about you all. But you know, I when it came around the 2016 election, there was someone who is my mentor that I love a great deal, who just was fundamentally deeply disappointed in me because of my my voting decisions. I thought we would have a civil conversation about it, and it really came down to it. It was deeper than can I. It, it was deeper than character. It was it was the issues that we are voting for or not or voting against are life and death. They're deeply personal. Like and for him, those issues mattered more than the character of the person. And I will say, just to be fair, for others on the other side, they felt the same way. Like every a lot of people felt the same way at the same time. And so I, I just wonder how do you then ultimately pull a lever nobody pulls a lever but how do you pull a lever for <laughs> right for someone and and people are going to feel i'm i'm trying to walk the line here people are going to feel this about voting for trump or voting for i don't well, probably joe biden right how do we handle that what do we do with that because it feels like there's a third option but there is no third option there's two people to vote for i guess the third option is apathy so how do you how do you handle that well you and know, that was I, a lot. I'm sorry. I just like word vomited and I'm like, <laughs> now you you counsel me. Help. <laughs> Listen, here's the thing. You know, part of what we talk about in the book is putting politics in its place. Yeah. And, you know, I decided I don't ever want to feel like I felt on election night 2016 ever again. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to feel that despondent. I don't want to ever feel that broken. Not because these issues aren't important and not because you're going to encounter people who feel rightly so that politics touches on issues of identity, of safety, yeah. of um, fundamental values. That's all true. But right. the paradox is, and also, um, life goes on and the world continues to spin um, outside politics. It's it is both essential <laughs> and um, not what keeps the earth rotating around the sun, right? So I think being able to hold that tension, um, especially if you are a person whose safety is not threatened. We, we say a lot, like some people are called to be safe and some people are be called to be uncomfortable so others can feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, so if you have privilege, if you see the way this impacts other people's lives but have some privilege and safety in your own life, then maybe it is your work to do to push to push at that tension in ways others can't. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants it to be stand with me in this battle royale. This election is the last election, just like the last, you know, I think a lot about, I'm not that old, but I am 38. And I think a lot about the ways in which the George W. Bush presidency was talked about, thought about, written about the way I felt about it as a young 20 year old. Mm -hmm. So many times it felt like the end of the world. And it is both true that it was in many parts of the world that hundreds of thousands of people died because of the actions of the Bush administration. That is a fact. That is true. Mm -hmm. And that my life continued on and that America continued on and that some things got better and some things got worse. And I wish that I could make it simpler. And I wish that I could make everything a binary choice between good and evil. 
But life is more complicated than that. And politics is just an expression of human beings and their complicated choices. And, you know, I think when we make everything a battle royale, when we yeah. say this issue is the end of the world, this candidate is the end of the world, this election is the end of the world. First of all, we create a lot of anxiety for people, which is paralyzing. Um, it's not empowering. And we create an environment in which all manner of bad behavior is justifiable. We can dehumanize, we can cancel, we can treat somebody like human garbage because, well, this issue is the, we can break up relationships with people because, well, this time is really the time. And I, I you know, it's, it's not that I've never done that. It's not that I don't see the appeal. It's not that I probably won't do it again. But about certain issues around certain political topics or controversies, it's just, is it working? Are we happy with that approach? Are we happy breaking up our relationships and alienating ourselves and living in silos where everyone agrees with us? Do we think that served our country? Do we think that served these issues that we feel so strongly about? Issues of identity, issues of safety, because I'm not sure it has. And so I, as much as certain approaches feel good, I want to do what works. You know, I said after 2016, I can sit around and wish that Louisiana would leave the union, but they're not going to. And Louisianans can sit around and wish California is going to leave and it's not going to either. We're here together. If we want to continue to move forward, we're going to have to figure this out instead of treating each other like the enemy and like civil war is the only option. Because for the most part, Americans live pretty comfortable existence and I don't think anybody's looking for a civil war. So mm -hmm. um, I just think that that, but no, you know, that's hard. That's a hard tension yeah. to sit with. That's a difficult thing to talk about and explain. You know, we get, we got an email the other day about our book that was like, well, for, pe you know, for people in, in situations of oppression, it's just really hard to, to hear. And, but our book's not written for that. Our book is not written for somebody who's fundamentally oppressed to pick up and go confront the nearest white supremacist on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Please don't do that. That's not what we're talking about. That serves right. nobody. There's no point to do that. When we are in relationship with one another and we are going to continue in relationship to get with one another, even if the relationship is just citizens, then we have to start thinking through some of these things. Hey friends, just popping in here because this seems like the appropriate week to ask for your help with something in the political sphere. As you know, this show is presented by International Justice Mission, which is a global organization that partners with local justice systems to end violence against people living in poverty. It is important work. And one of the ways we work is by using our collective voices, not just of IJM, but people all around the globe, to speak to our elected officials and ask them to participate in ending slavery. To that end, each year, Congress weighs the importance of this work and decides whether to fund our country's anti-slavery initiatives. And the people in Congress need to be reminded that these resources have true life-saving power and that the lives of millions of people who are oppressed are hanging in the balance. So here's what I'm asking. Would you take about 15 seconds to sign a very simple petition that asks your members of Congress to help it's a huge way to make a big difference with only a few moments of your time. You should know that your voice matters and the powerful are moved to action by your willingness to dive in. If you would go to newactivist.is forward slash Congress, link is in the show note, that would be immensely helpful. And please let me know that you signed it. I'd love to thank you. Back to the conversation with Sarah and Beth. 
all have literally written a book on this topic. It is called I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. And it is a fantastic book. Um, and that, I mean, I... I hope you all feel as proud of it as I hope you do, um, because oh, it's it, it just an important book. Um, and I, I want to talk practically a little bit in our time together, because we are in uh, right now on the recording of this and actually the release of this were the day before the Florida, Illinois, Ohio primary. Um, so things are heating up and the general election is basically happening. Um, and people are really the ideologies are clashing on the battlefield at this point and, and in a special way that only a general presidential election can bring out. So I, I would love to talk about how we can begin to, to have a, a civil nuanced conversation with people who we strongly disagree with, or even kind of disagree with. Um, where, where do you start? Because it's so darn personal. How do you start with this? I think one of the major issues with the presidential elections and the way that, as you mentioned, it draws out this special kind of emotion yeah. is that we use the presidential candidates as symbols of absolutely everything we care about. Yeah. And so we're all hiring for different jobs. You know, is the president the chief legislator of the country? Then we're going to have a different conversation than if we're talking about the commander in chief or the person who's supposed to comfort us when a school shooting or a natural disaster happens, or the person who's supposed to mobilize the largest bureaucracy in the world around something like coronavirus. The president has to be a lot of different things, but we each attach to a particular part of that role. And so that helps me in conversation. What do you think is the most important job of a president? What do you think the next president is actually going to have time to think about? Mm. You know, George W. Bush came into office intending to work on immigration. He intended to be a domestic president. The world handed him 9-11, and it drastically changed the course of what he was there to do. So let's talk about the president as a person who is in office in a time period instead of as a representative of absolutely everything that we care about. And once we're able to conceptualize the role, then maybe we're able to have a different conversation. Oh, I see you really like this person because you think so much about the commander in chief. And I'm really attaching to this person as sort of the moral conscience of the nation or the person who is supposed to have a plan for climate change because of its urgency. Let's let's break apart what it is that we're even discussing and then recognize that the apparatus we elect around that person is really an even better place to work out some of those policy positions. If you really care about getting legislation done on climate, on guns, on um, any number of issues that people feel this heightened sense of urgency about, then who's your Senate candidate? You know, mm. who, who do you care about in the House of Representatives? What's your holistic philosophy about how this could play out? We just got to pull back from like, whose name do I want on my T-shirt for the next few months? Mm. How about uh, the, I mean, we're zooming in even closer, but what about the role of social media in in Ugh. all of this? And yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess Ugh. that's the answer. But, but I'm just answer. curious. I mean, right, because everybody writes the same post and it is eventually, okay, I don't normally post on social media, but I can't take it anymore. Here it is. And then it's Ugh. just like a two paragraph monologue diatribe uh, about their views and their views are valid and they're allowed to have them. But I'm curious, um, obviously the role of social media in the last election has been well documented, but I'm curious about just how you would advise us to maintain some measure of civility in the midst of a medium that is not 
really civil. I mean, just get off of it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a lot of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I recently deactivated my Facebook account and this, this was a, a social platform. I really, really loved for a long time. I'm an extrovert. I'm a social person. I was a stay at home mom for a while and Facebook was a true lifeline for me. And I Mm. loved it and I got so much value out of it. Um, But as a person who works and writes and thinks and talks about our political climate, it just, the the costs so outweigh the benefits at this point in that platform's history. We should not be getting our news from a social algorithm. Like it's just, it only rewards fear and anxiety and confirmation bias. Um, people need to engage with um, the sources themselves so that hopefully we can build up some of that trust. Because, you know, what I was thinking about earlier when you were saying, when if there's no trust, well, the answer to no trust is not further distrust. Right. The answer to trust is a certain amount of faith and a certain mm-hmm. amount of I'm going to step out and I'm going to make a choice. And I'm going to decide to engage with a news source, even though I might not, I worry that I might not be getting the complete story, but I'm just going to start. I might worry about how this political conversation is going to go, but I'm just going to start because part of it is the practice of doing it and realizing that the world continues on. The sun comes up. You can say something wrong. You can get mad. You can feel misinformed. You can speak out of that misinformation and you're still at the table. It's still, you're still at the table. Um, and you cannot convey that to somebody. They have to experience it. And it's a very difficult experience to have on social media. Um, mm. Our brains evolved over thousands and thousands of years to hear each other's voices and see each other's faces. Um, I mean, I see this so dramatically moving from blogging to podcasting. Um, when people could read my blog and I have people who read it and loved it and who emailed me, it's nothing compared to how people feel when I'm in their ears right. for two hours a week. It's such an mm-hmm. intimate experience. Um, and our brain, I think it lights up all sorts of parts of our brain in really great ways. And, you know, that, and, and it's not just the news aspect. It's not just the um, terrible effect it has on what we think is conversation on social media because it's not really conversation it's it's also the 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 feeling and i felt myself falling for it over and over again that this is political action i feel really outraged about something and when i share about it on facebook i've done something um with love i wasn't doing anything i was speaking into the void i wasn't making anybody's lives better or worse do i think there were places um on facebook where i disrupted other people's narratives where i said hey you know me you like me i'm a liberal member me yeah yeah i do and i think there's some value to that but not enough for the downside of all the times i'm not there to disrupt and that people can just feed each other's anxieties and misinformation and fear and i think you know the idea that that posting that sort of uh, nin, you know, Facebook ninjaing in the threads is political action is really problematic. There's a really good book called politics is for power. Um, mm. that I'm, I'm like totally obsessed with now. And he's like political hobbyism, this idea that, you know, we read the stories and we read the long reads and we share them on Facebook. And that means we're participating in our democracy. Not great guys. It's not great. Um, we need to participate in our democracy by engaging with our fellow citizens, by going to meetings, by voting, by running for office, by serving a nonprofit, by writing a letter to the editor, by doing all these things that require 
more bravery, more courage, more vulnerability that can really have an effect and that can really um, serve the body politic. I think that particularly the fact that Facebook has decided to allow political advertisements that spread misinformation and contain um, lies is really what's pu like what pushed me straight over the edge where I'm like, I'm done. Cause I, I mean, I won't lie to you and say that I'm off Twitter and Instagram. I'm not. Um, yeah. but, but I did decide that, that what, that Facebook in particular, I think has just outworn its welcome, particularly with regards to politics. May I add a little bit to what Sarah said? Yes. Because a lot of people aren't going to make that decision to step away from one or any platform and that's okay. These are tools. They are not inherently good or bad. They're certainly designed to do some things that I think are not great for us, but we can shift how we use them in ways that are productive. My therapist, who is a wonderful teacher in my life, uses this metaphor that everything is like a river and we can put whatever we put into the river and it will get diluted and sometimes washed up and it will change the river in some way and it will not be as big a way as we would like sometimes and sometimes it will be bigger than we wish and I think about that with something like Facebook how can I just put good things in the river so I try to use Facebook politically only when I am there to say thank you to someone here's something really good that I think is happening or someone who mm. worked really hard or even in the midst of a crisis I posted once after a school shooting that I'm so thankful for teachers because this has to be an incredibly complex yeah. uh, profession and an incredibly complex role in the midst of everything going on. And so how can I just put something good in the river? I try not to use social media to complain about customer service or companies. Um, <laughs> I try to only engage with my friends on political posts when I really am grateful for something that they're actually doing in the world, to Sarah's point about the difference between um online punditry and actual political action. When people are actually taking political action, when they're running for office, when they're showing up to a school board meeting as an observer, uh, when they've written a letter to the editor, that's when I show up to just add my little good thing to the river um, because that's the best that I can do. I feel like that keeps me in my lane of responsibility and sets a tone and an example, and it keeps me being the person who I want to mm. be. I also want to step back and say that I just witnessed the dynamic that works so well between the two of you on the show, <laughs> where, where one of you sets something on fire and then the other one just walks around the fire gently explaining. It, like, I, I love like, it. Yeah, thank you both for your, for your oh, That's a really kind way to describe it. Thank you. <laughs> I know you're both very thoughtful. I, I deeply appreciate it. Um, in our remaining moments, um, a couple things. First, you talk about approaching all of this with grace, and I know that faith is is a huge part of what anchors you in all of these conversations. I know that this is a broad question, and I haven't figured out a clever way to ask it, but in in what is the role of faith as it pertains to your your political activism? Well, I like the way that you said that it's an anchor for us because I wouldn't want anyone to expect to come to our podcast and hear a Sunday school lesson. You know, we are people of faith engaging in a political space mm -hmm. through the lens of faith informing our values. But you can have values from a lot of sources. And so if you are not a person of faith, um, as many of our listeners aren't, I think just bringing to your values to the conversation, your values to the conversation, not just bringing your values to the conversation and showing up is all we're asking anyone to do. What we really don't want. And the reason that we're so open about our faith 
is to continue to perpetuate this idea that politics exist in a container in our society. And that's why we don't have to talk about them. And that's why when it comes to politics, everything's on the table. It's almost like a war, no holds barred. And we want to approach politics through the lens of how do we live our lives in general? So I bring my faith to political discussions, not to dictate a policy outcome or to tell me what candidate to vote for Mm. or what party to belong to, but to say, first, what kind of human do I want to be as I engage with other humans about how we all live in community together? And that informs both the way that I talk to them and the way that I hear them and the actions that we take as a result. I think that, you know, something we I've mentioned before here and what we talk about about in the book is that politics is <laughs> we're asking it to do too much and why i think faith is so important in our conversations and, and to me is because it gives me a more expansive language for talking about values because politics is not built for that um, politics is not built to give um, the fullest expression to the to the human experience to love and grief and loss and triumph and vulnerability. It's just, it's not up for the challenge. And having another way um, to to talk about that and to acknowledge, hey, we're coming up short here. We're going to need another way to talk about this or another vehicle through which to work out these values. Because, you know, I think for so long, faith, particularly the Christian faith, was used as a way to lock people out of conversation. And what we try to do is the opposite. What we're going to talk about it as a way to open up this conversation to bigger issues. And that's an invitation for you to do the same. I sincerely do not care how you do it. I do Mm -hmm. not care what your faith is. If you don't have a faith, if as long as you find language and a way to have a bigger conversation about values and um, what's important to you outside of policy and politics, um, that's all that matters to me. Um, I'm going to use my Christian faith. It, it, it sincerely does not matter to me what you use, because I think that once we enter that space, whatever door we walk through, there's much more that we have in, have in common than separates us in those conversations. And so, you know, that's what I really hope happens. One of my favorite reviews we ever got on Amazon was, I didn't know this was a book um, by a Christian publisher. I'm not a Christian, but I still felt like there was a lot of room for me within these pages to think through those things. And that's, oh, yeah. that's definitely what we're trying to do. So the last thing I want to talk about is apathy, uh, because in all of this and in all this conversation, I get, a, I get a sense and also there's data to show that the younger you are, the less likely you are to, to vote. And so I'm curious, how do you explain kind of that apathy and how, how would you push back against it? Because I'm guessing the people that listen to your show are at least somewhat political active, politically active or, or woke or curious or some measure of involved, but there's just a huge amount of uh, just shutting down over all of it. How do you, how do you all respond to that? I think we've got to have room for where people are and what people have bandwidth for in their lives and also some self-awareness about what our action actually looks like. I mean, I 
Um, I really appreciate when Sarah talks about politics is for power and the way that a lot of us are political hobbyists. And when we say other people are apathetic, what we mean is they're not watching every debate with me. And I think that's a problem. So I don't want to be too judgmental about where people are. I also want to recognize that politics exist no matter how much you know about the people who lead our government. And so if you're talking to someone who says, well, my vote doesn't matter anyway, I think the best way to inspire them to action is to talk about all the ways that they are participating politically, whether they know it or not. Um, maybe that person volunteers with a nonprofit organization. Mm. Maybe they have advocated for something in their workplace. You know, we are constantly impacting our communities and helping people see that and saying, you already contribute in this way. I would just love for you to contribute at the ballot box as well. Or I would love for you to contribute by going to this meeting with me as well, because your voice really matters. You have something important to say. And that something important often comes from a person who is really enmeshed in laundry and carpool and uh, getting a degree online and juggling their bills every month. I mean, the voices that haven't been at the table are the voices that we're missing in enacting better policies and governing more effectively. So I think we just need to not shame people about their political participation, but rather inspire them by talking about all the ways in which they can make it better without having to fundamentally change their lives because of the way their lives exist today. Mm. And I think particularly with young people, I was always interested in politics. That is not a superior moral attribute. It's just what I was interested in. In the same way, some people are interested in sports and I never was. So if you're not, I feel like you're, if you're that person, if it's something that's always interested you, then it's going to be something that always interested you. (laughs) And if you're not that person, and it's not something that's interested you, I think there's really sort of two on-ramps. One, particularly with political engagement via voting, there's so much interesting science out there that if you can get an 18-year-old to the ballot box as soon as they're registered to vote in that first election, and it just becomes a habit. It's just a thing they do, Mm. sort of, which is antithetical to, I think, a lot of way we talk about politics. But if you can just build the habit in young adults, that's one really important way to build engagement that I don't think we pay enough attention to in the United States. I think the other on-ramp is a life experience that is fundamentally altered by a political issue. And that's not something you can plan. You know, we ha- I was a junior in high school when there was a school shooting at my high school. Whatever interest I already had was just, you know, cemented at that point because the issue of gun control changed my life. You see that with Parkland students. You see it with um, senators who, I think it's Patty Murray who had, you know, there was a representative, her, like her, her husband was shot on a subway and she became a representative yeah. and, and created a career in politics. You see people, I think a lot of what you see with really young people um, in the Sanders campaign is um, people who are either life were, were really fundamentally changed by a health crisis and their interaction with the insurance agency, people who are frustrated by their interactions with higher education and student debt. Um, and so, you know, some of that is just inherent in building life experiences and bumping up against institutions in ways you either liked or didn't. And so that's going to, you know, unwrap you into politics. And I think there's just a, an aspect of that that 
we have to let happen um, that we can't force on people. And, you know, the, uh, the only other thing that we can do, I think, is just sort of build the habit and, and create an environment in which this is this is something we do. This is just something we do in our community, in our family. We vote. And, you know, I, I think if we can focus on that, the rest of it, the the interactions with the system itself that builds that political interest will happen on its own. Well, a huge thank you to Sarah and Beth for giving us language and insight that helps us really preserve relationships while remaining active and engaged. I hope this informs your political activism this season. To keep up with Sarah and Beth, head to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. That link will be in the show notes. There you can find information on where they are speaking. They do a bunch of live events. I would definitely check those out. Also subscribe to their podcast. It is so good. And buy their new book. They are important voices and they continue to churn out great content really grateful they were on the show today. If you have a moment and you have not yet done this, if you could rate and review The New Activist on Apple Podcasts, it is one of the best ways that you can support the show and help people find it. Throw us five stars and an encouraging word. It is really, really helpful. And thanks for sharing about us on social media, which by the way, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them our new activist is. A huge thank you to Propaganda who scored today's episode, music, merch, all that good stuff can be found at prophiphop.com and you can find him on Twitter at prophiphop. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends.